Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Um, I'm excited to talk about the topic of curcumin, um, a derivative of turmeric. And it's a topic a lot of you have asked us about. Well, we went to the person, uh, Dr. Gary Small from UCLA, who has conducted a study on um, what it means to take supplements of curcumin. Um, what does that mean for brain health? So Dr. Small, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be joining you today. Thank you for inviting me. So let's just start with the very basics. Um, what exactly is curcumin? We know it's related to turmeric, but what is it exactly? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a spice, basically, and about 5% of turmeric contains curcumin. And we got interested in, it's actually been used in Asia for thousands of years as a medicinal uh, for a variety of different problems, from skin problems to arthritis and all sorts of medical issues. We got interested in it because it seemed in the laboratory to have anti-inflammatory effects and also anti-amyloid and possibly anti-tau effects. And, and everybody who's been involved in Alzheimer's disease knows that these abnormal protein deposits, amyloid and tau, are very much linked to the clinical disease. Okay, so you decided to take this on and actually um, conducted a human um, research trial on the impact. So tell us a little bit about who was tested and what you found. Well, you know, so just, just to give you a little more background on it, uh, in fact, when I think back on it, uh, what first got our attention was that there were epidemiological studies that showed that in India, where they consume a lot of spicy foods. Curries, uh, a lot of turmeric and curries, right? Yeah, a lot cur curry has turmeric and curcumin. There was a lower rate of Alzheimer's disease compared to other countries. And of course, that's what a, a lawyer might call circumstantial evidence. It doesn't prove cause and effect. But the basic science evidence that I alluded to, the anti-inflammatory effects, anti-amyloid, anti-tau, and even antioxidant effects, suggested it might be brain protective. So uh, people had studied this before, but primarily they were negative studies. And what had happened is that uh, doctors had taken uh, some forms of curcumin and given them to patients who already had dementia. Uh, we had done some studies uh, almost a decade ago where we used an anti-inflammatory drug to treat people not with dementia, but people at risk for dementia. Because a lot of studies show that if you're going to have this anti-inflammatory effect, there's a tipping point when it's brain protective versus maybe even accelerating cognitive decline. So uh, what we did was to target a group that we thought would benefit most from curcumin's potential effects that might help the brain. Uh, and that's that mild stage of cognitive decline before people need help from others. Uh, and, um, and also the other puzzle, there were several puzzles. One was how much do you prescribe or how much do you give people? And, and finally, what form do you use? Because there's curcumin and there's curcumin. And so it actually took us almost longer to decide on those research questions than it did to raise the money. 
How, how do how do you decide that though without you know well, for you to conduct the trial? You, you know, it, it's I have a quote. I don't think you can see it from here, but on on my desk it's uh, it's a quote from Einstein. If we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research, would we? <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's no perfect research study, but you have to kind of consider all these issues, and and so it involved uh, talking to experts around the world. It involved uh, talking to different companies that, that manufacture these products. Uh, it involved looking at all the literature, and I can tell you it was hard to get consensus among the experts. Everybody had a different opinion, and at a certain point, we just had to make an educated. Uh, decision on what to do. And so we, we found a, a company in Japan that was producing this form of curcumin that looked like it was more bioavailable than what other, other companies were producing. In fact, you could dissolve it in water. And, and some of the other forms that we checked wouldn't dissolve in water, it was hard to use and so forth. So we, you know, we finally made that decision. In terms of dosing, you know, we wanted to make sure people got enough of a dose. There are, there's a kind of study called dose finding study where you give people different doses, but we didn't have enough money to do that. We only had so much money. Uh, so we, we decided on a dose that we thought would be high enough so it would have a biological effect, but not too high that there would be side effects that people force people to drop out. So we made those decisions. And also it was it was kind of a complicated study because we also wanted to look at the accumulation of amyloid and tau in the brain. So a group of us, uh, several of us who were involved in this study had uh, years earlier invented a, a PET scan technology that actually provides images of amyloid and tau in the brain. And so we wanted to use that technology to track the baseline and follow-up. So everybody who participated in the study had um, the basic um, hallmarks of um, the biomarkers, I should say, of, of um, either plaques or tangles. Um, well, that's not that's not entirely true. Uh, what actually it, it, that's a, another discussion, and and it turns out you know people this is another discussion, but we've done hundreds of these scans, and it turns out that these plaques and tangles probably build up in all of our brains over a lifetime. It isn't until they reach a critical level that we see problems. So what, inflammation, is that the problem? Well, actually, inflammation is still another, you know, plaques and tangles are just protein deposits that define the disease. And they collect in areas of the brain that control memory and thinking. The inflammation, we think, I, I really, my opinion is it's, it's inflammation that is really driving this process and the plaque and tangle buildup may be a secondary event, but it still is a way to track how you're doing. Not everybody got the scan because uh, after we started the study, we had a certain amount of money, uh, but the scans went up in price. So we didn't have enough money to scan everybody and actually cut down. That was another limitation of the study. Uh, we only had about 40 people who completed the study. But another thing that happened uh, as a result of the design issues was we thought we wanted to do a long-term study because if, if, we, if we saw an effect on plaques and tangles, you wouldn't be able to see it after a month or two months. And so we designed it as an 18-month study. And our previous studies showed that even people with mild memory complaints who don't have dementia, over an 18-month to two-year period, you can see a buildup 
a significant buildup of these plaques and tangles. So we thought if this thing is working, at the very least, you may not see a buildup as a result of the treatment. So uh, 40 people, we have data on 40 people, about half of them had the, the uh, bioavailable form of curcumin, the other had placebo. And uh, we had PET scans on 30 of them before and after. And so what were the results? What did you, what were well, the, the results were quite encouraging. And, and we do a lot of these different clinical trials. We, we look at uh, whether memory training helps, whether healthy lifestyle, uh, other drugs and supplements. Uh, and we don't see uh, results that are as strong as we saw in this study. We, we look at, if you look at a measure uh, that's often used in these studies, it's called effect size. And effect size is a ratio that incorporates the actual effect of the active compound and, and, and compares that to the placebo effect. And you, you really, unless you do a placebo-controlled study, you don't know if something's really working because placebo works, but it's only temporary. And so we want to factor that out. And, and the effect sizes on memory and attention were about 0 0.4, 0 0.5, which is considered a moderate effect size. And you know, put that in perspective, the drugs that have been approved for Alzheimer's disease, they have effect sizes about 0 0.2, 0 0.3, which is a bit smaller. So that was encouraging that we saw these positive effects. The effects actually, uh, we started seeing them after six months and they built up over the, the 18 months of the study. And so that, that was quite encouraging that we're seeing something positive. And, and of course, uh, we've got to replicate this in a larger sample, and we're, we're right now planning to do that. Uh, and, and the other thing that was interesting in the study, in the 30 people who had the PET scans, a couple of the brain regions, uh, the amygdala and uh, the thalamus, they showed, um, they showed a, a significant change in terms of the buildup of the plaques and tangles. Now, you know, I'm because that was a smaller sample there, I'm, I'm saying that's sort of other evidence. It's intriguing, but that too has to be replicated. To me, what's most important is that there is a clinical effect, that it's actually having an effect on memory and attention, issues that bother people. And I think that's important. Uh, and it seems to be very safe. People didn't have a lot of side effects. Okay, and so there's a question coming in about whether or not any of the people you tested um, had the APOE4 variant. Um, you know, obviously for, for our viewers, that's the what's known as the Alzheimer's gene. Um, if you have one copy, then it elevates your risk by maybe about 30%. If you have a, if you're what's called homozygous, um, having a double copy, then that really um, elevates your risk of um, getting Alzheimer's if you um, live a full lifespan. So someone's asking, were, were, were NE4s included in the study? Yeah, there was, we looked at that uh, and we, we always collect data on genetic risk uh, because sometimes you may not find an effect in the general population, but you may find it in either the APOE4 carriers or the non-carriers. And unfortunately, the sample size was too small to show whether APOE4 carriers are more or less likely to respond. So is that something in the future, though, that you'll you'll consider? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we'll definitely, if we get a larger sample in a follow-up study, we'll look at APOE4. We'll look at a lot of other uh, questions we didn't answer in this study. For example, our sample size was a bit, or our, our 
sample population was a bit heterogeneous because we had people with what's called mild cognitive impairment and people with what's called normal aging. So if you know you plot cognitive decline, there's really three general stages. There's the normal aging, which is which affects almost everybody where they can't find their keys or you forget someone's name. It doesn't really affect your life that much. You just joke about it. If that progresses, then people develop what's called mild cognitive impairment, which is actually a risk state for developing dementia, uh, which is when your cognitive impairment interferes with your everyday life. So we're not sure whether it was the MCI group that was driving the result, the normal aging group, or both. Because so, again, it was a small sample. Is it your um, presumption that, I mean, everyone, when people talk about the uh, pathology of Alzheimer's disease, they, they talk about, you know, the plaques and then tangles and inflammation, and inflammation being the stage where you can start to see symptoms um, of the disease. So when we talk about turmeric or curcumin, are we... Um, is it the anti-inflammatory um, properties that you believe could really um, help in terms of um, preventing or um, Alzheimer's or just generally improving brain health? So we don't know. That's uh, it's a list of mechanisms that we entertain. Uh, one reason my thinking is going more and more towards the anti-inflammatory effect is that if you look at the different interventions that we've tested and others have tested, there seems to be this anti-inflammatory theme. About 10 years ago, we did a study of a similar population, uh, people in a similar size study, people with either normal aging or mild cognitive impairment. And it was, uh, it was also an 18-month study. And we randomized them to an anti-inflammatory drug or a placebo. And we saw benefits, cognitive benefits. And we also, we did brain scans. We did a different kind of brain scan where we used PET to look at the functioning of the brain cells uh, by how well they metabolize glucose. And we saw an effect on that as well. So, uh, and then we've done studies and others have looking at, for example, physical exercise. That's one of the most potent ways to protect your brain. And exercise is an anti-inflammatory uh, activity. I know if I go out, if I have aches and pains and I work out at the gym, I don't feel as much pain. I feel better. And I think it's that anti-inflammatory effect. So uh, we get a lot of questions, I mean, and, and with any supplement, um, how do people know what is, and you touched on this a little bit when you talked about the Japanese company that you used um, that brand of, of curcumin, but how does the consumer know what, how to choose? Um, I mean, we see a lot of turmeric tea coming onto the market now. How do we know which one to pick and how much we really need okay. to have an impact? So, so let me answer that. And let me also um, disclose my conflicts of interest. So when we started this study, um, I didn't uh, have any involvement with any of these uh, companies that produce uh, curcumin. Uh, we actually got money from foundations to fund the study. Uh, when we decided on the company, it's called TheraValues, um, they agreed to supply the curcumin. And it's a brand of curcumin they make. It's called TheraCurmin. So, uh, and we disclose that in our papers and et cetera. Since we published the paper, 
the company has asked me to help them in designing future studies. So I do have that conflict of interest. So uh, the the brand that we use is called Therakerman, and the bioavailability studies done on this uh, were convincing. And we and also in our paper we did our own bio to convince ourselves. We compared the Therakerman to uh, a GNC product and another product, and and we showed that it indeed seemed to be more available in the blood when people consume it than, than some of the other products. Uh, so if consumers are interested in it, they can just go online and, and this company actually sells it to other companies. So you just look for Thera, T-H-E-R-A, Kerman would be the key word in, in any of these products. We're, we're getting questions in about like, oh, so how much do you really have to well, take? I was going to add to that. So what, I don't know how much, but I can tell you what we tested that seemed to work. It would be Therakerman containing 90 milligrams of curcumin twice a day. Twice a day. So, And that was uh, administered in a tablet. Is that right? A, a pill? A capsule, yeah. So, okay. yeah. So, you know, you can get these capsules now. There were some of the side effects. Some a few people had a little bit of an upset stomach, and uh, if people experience that, you can you can take the the capsule and open it up and put in a little water, and it will dissolve. And you can kind of it's probably a little easier on the stomach. You drink it down with a meal, and you might be able to tolerate it better that way. Right. You can also drink it in your food. You can put sprinkle it in your food, or or better yeah. yet, why not just eat a lot of curry? <laughs> well, I mean, you could do that. I mean, one could argue that. Just you know, one study found uh, that kind of got us interested in this: that people who eat uh, Indian food more often perform better on memory tests. So you could go out there and have your curry a couple times a week. That would make my husband very happy. Who's it? <laughs> he likes it. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So um, I, I have a little, I have a question about uh, about that. You mentioned the populations of people in India who have a lower incidence of, of Alzheimer's. Now, um, presumably that's an epidemiological study where they just reviewed a lot of data. Is that yeah. right? Right. What ex do you have more? Can you tell us a little bit more about what was found and in what region and was it specifically related to <laughs> I just uh -oh. lost your the uh, I've really got to update my dose here. <laughs> so I, you know, I think that uh, you don't know from an epi the epidemiological studies like this just so show you associations. So it could be lots of reasons unrelated to their spicy food consumption that attributes uh, their lower rate of dementia. Uh, we know that people, for example, people who are loners and are isolated have a higher risk for dementia. Maybe in Indian cultures, there's a strong, there are stronger family connections and ties uh, that could mitigate against that risk. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, there have been studies done, for example, uh, looking at African, rates of dementia in African-Americans, comparing it to rates in Nigeria. And they find lower rates in Nigeria, which uh, some investigators have attributed to the simpler diet. You're not eating, eating all the fast foods. It could be a lot of different things. And I think it, it, that was just sort of a clue that got us in that direction 
but it got people to look more carefully at some of these spices and how they might be able to protect our brains. Did you um, relate this, the study or are, will you in future studies look at how it could um, impact other type of conditions? I mean, someone's asking about diabetes um, and in relation, um, is it, has, is that being studied at all or is that, do you well, feel like? Yeah, other, other investigators have looked at curcumin in many different ways. Uh, they've, they've looked at it for cancer. Uh, one thing that people have been talking about, and I think this company may have an indication in some place. They actually sell this in some countries uh, as a treatment for hangover. Uh, they have little uh, gummies that they chew. Uh, but another incidental finding is quite interesting. Some people have written to me and they've said, you know, my gums are healthier, which is quite an interesting observation because we know that gingivitis, particularly in older people, increases a person's risk for dementia. So what I think is happening there is, you know, gin, gum disease is an inflammatory disease. And, and I think these kinds of diseases trigger a, a systemic inflammatory response. It gets into the brain. So and that, who knows, maybe that's the mechanism of how it's working. It's curing people's gingivitis and that's helping their memory. Right. So a lot of possible interesting explanations. You talked about taking this study further, expanding it, and, you know, um, so what does that look like exactly? What's the next phase of, of this research? Well, and you know, it's, it's interesting to me. I'm not a statistician, but I work with a very uh, bright statistician. And you, know, you think, well, okay, you had 40 people in this study, so all you got to do is go out and get another 40 people, right? No. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. When oh, they, that they do right. something called a power calculation based on the estimated effect. And so we've got to go, we've got to do another study uh, that is, uh, includes hundreds of people. And, and also what, uh, what I think they're going to want to do is do the study, you know, I'll, I'll consult on this study, but probably not even include UCLA as a site. And we have to show that, uh, the, that this curcumin works not just at UCLA, it works lots of places. So I think it, it will be a multi-site study. It will... Uh, it will probably uh, use similar kinds of tests that we use. I mean, one thing we were very careful of because we've done so many of these studies is to use sensitive measures. You can't use the same kind of cognitive tests that you use in a patient who already has dementia. It's gotta be something that's harder for people to do so you can actually see the subtle effects of, of any uh, potential benefit. Right. So um, it's it's interesting. Um, I'm just wondering if curcumin is a substance found in turmeric. Is that right? So do you have to take the curcumin out of the turmeric to get get that extra concentration, or is just having turmeric good enough? Well, those are questions that haven't been answered. I mean, one might argue that if it's true that consuming spicy foods may be enough, then Maybe that's the ticket. Is uh, yeah, I mean, that would be interesting to to compare these capsules to uh, a turmeric enriched diet and see if that's enough. And there and also there may be something about cooking with these spices that may makes it more available to the to the body and the in the brain. So it might be combining it with oils, other spices that make it more absorbable.
Well, I guess the good news is, is it really can't be that day. If, if 1.1 billion people are having turmeric on a daily basis, it really can't be too dangerous for us, I suppose. That's true. That's true. Unless you're allergic to it. Uh, now, now, having said that, uh, you know, we still have to be careful if we test these capsules or supplements and people should be aware of that. I mean, there's a lot of interest in supplements and you know, the way it works in this country and most countries is that the bar for getting something sold is not nearly as high as for a drug. You know, to, to get a drug approved, you have to do several double-blind placebo-controlled studies. It has to be reviewed by the proper groups. A supplement can be sold and put on the shelves with just what they call structure function claims. So there can be a laboratory test and it looks like this spice or this supplement strengthens brain cells or strengthens muscle cells and, and a company can sell it based on that. And where the regulations come into play is if the FTC sees that there are claims that really go beyond uh, what really the data show. So I think consumers need to be aware of that. They need to realize uh, that to, to truly show that something's working, I apologize for the sirens, but okay. <laughs> something going on. The teaching hospital across the street, and right. um, so there's an ambulance. Uh, but they have to realize that you have to test a compound against the placebo. And double blind means neither neither the research subjects nor the doctors know who's taking what. And you use systematic measures to really show there's an effect. Right. Uh, and, you know, as always, when we do these talks, um, it's always good to consult with your doctor um, before you try anything new, for that matter. As you said, you know, perhaps people suffer allergy, but um, this one's probably a, a safer bet, um, given that it's in a, in a lot of food um, that people eat. But thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I would say it is safer. It is safe. But always talk with your doctor because supplements can interact with your drugs. You know, for example, uh, a lot of people take vitamin E uh, and they were taking it for memory in the past. And that can uh, that can increase blood clots, especially if you're taking something uh, else that might increase blood clotting. So just because it's natural doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. Absolutely. And thank you so much um, for joining us today. If um, you have any updated information from your research, please do let us know. Um, we are taking questions from our community and going straight to the experts such as yourself. So we really appreciate the time that you've given right. us. And so, and also for updates, you can uh, follow me on Facebook or Twitter and it's just uh, Dr. Gary Small, Dr. Gary Small. Okay, Dr. Gary Small, will do. Thank you so much, Dr. Small. Thank for you for your interest. Okay, take care.